From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 24th. Today, we continue Lift Up, LGBTQ plus visibility. KZMU recognizes the need to share voices and stories from our local LGBTQ plus community members on the airwaves. We are hopeful that Lift Up helps deepen understanding and empathy within our community and reinforces a sense of belonging. Here's co-producer Ginger Allen with an introduction for today's storyteller. Sam is an organizer, writer, and outdoorsman based in Southern Utah. His work seeks the connection and coincidence of progressive leadership, rural autonomy, and community resilience. He is fueled by the instance that things truly splendid will inevitably eclipse the traumatic rot of our time. May it be our job to amplify and perpetuate all the very good things we live among. For me, being outdoors, being in the wilderness, and uh, connecting with my body through sport is one of the most affirming uh, ways that I have to live. I'm Sam Van Wetter. I'm 27 years old. Uh, I grew up on the Front Range of Colorado. My folks live there currently. Um, yeah, so Colorado is was was my home. If you had asked me when I was graduating college if I expected to end up in a town of 5,000 permanent residents in the desert, I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, because I, I, yeah, I loved metropolitan areas when I was in college. I lived in Berlin and London and San Francisco and, and, and wanted to be in those spaces. Um, but as my uh, recreative life and my wilderness life has become uh, more a part of who I am, I have actively pushed against the notion that in order to be young and queer and happy and successful and fulfilled, you have to live in a city. I I don't think that's true. And I think that is a narrative that's pushed on us um, by a lot of queer media. You know, it's, it's uh, queer life in, in a lot of media is inextricable from, from going out and from brunching and from drag shows and from parades and and we have those we have those in our small towns on occasion but um i believe in the rural resilience of queer people and i think that wild spaces are inherent to who we are as people um and so yeah sometimes i feel like i'm living in opposition to what a lot of 20 something year old gay men are doing and i i wouldn't do it any differently i uh, yeah i I get, I get overwhelmed elsewhere finding spaces where where the possibilities of where our bodies can take us are far greater than the limitations that gender sets on us that can create an open space of expression and of freedom um and, and, I mean, the desert is gay as hell. It's like, yeah, I think mountains are for, are, are for people who, like, want to get on top of something, you know? They're like, I want to get up and I want to get a view and I, I want a peak bag and I, I need the summit. 
Whereas deserts are for folks who want to know something deeper and want to want to explore canyons and want you know and want to want to uh, let themselves become a part of a landscape rather than just getting on top of something. I'm a cis white gay man. Um, I identify as queer, but um, I, I find that to be an umbrella to stand under, whereas if I'm checking a box, I am gay. Um, and my self-knowledge, my public knowledge, kind of went hand in hand. I've been gay for a really long time. I came out to my parents when I was 13 years old. I had a first boyfriend around the same time. I went to a fabulous uh, arts magnet school in middle and high school, and um, it was just, I mean, it was, it, it, it was... Uh, it was homonormative almost like like it, it was a space that um that yeah that that folks really had permission to express themselves through art and uh through dress and also through uh identity and sexuality um so i had access to that self-knowledge from a really early age and that is certainly a privilege that i have um that I have benefited from. I've worked in the ski industry. I've worked as a guide. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I spend so much of my time uh, doing activities that kind of ex exist in the cult of male heteronormativity. You know, my my favorite bars and my favorite ski towns are not are not queer places they're not places that i look around and i'm like oh i could go home with someone tonight because my my default assumption is that that most most all men and woodies on any given night are gonna be it's gonna be a straight guy like it, it's it's not it's not something that i can assume about people so every once in a while i'll end up in Denver and uh, San Francisco for Pride or for for a, some event like that, and it is it is a great relief to walk into publicly homonormative spaces to hit on people without uh, the threat of rejection or worse. I have found. Um, I think edges of a queer community here in Moab. Um, there are some fabulous queer elders in town, folks who have lived in these places unapologetically and fully uh, for a really long time, who don't have the same millennial headiness that I do about identity. Um, and a lot of my queer elders uh, came out much later in life. Um, I've, I've got some great friends who are men in their 60s, 70s, 80s, um, who had they come out at the same age I did, they might have well died in the AIDS crisis. And so having that kind of perspective of, um, of a later uh, sexual realization being a life-saving measure to them um, totally has changed my perspective on, on young coming out privilege. I experience queer joy when um, when I meet tourists who come through town and they kind of say, oh, this must be a hard place to live, or don't you miss, like, having a gay bar, or how do you meet people? And 
uh, I'm able to have a conversation and demonstrate the ways in which I've divorced myself from um, from these assumptions of what what a gay man in their 20s ought to be doing or where they ought to be living or what sort of work um, they ought to have. And so it's it's an act of visibility and in some ways it's an act of like uh, selfishness, you know, of, of me making a life that I am most content with and most proud of uh, without feeling adherent to um, those expectations or those frameworks. I find moments of queer joy when uh, people come out to me on chairlifts, and that's happened to me a couple times, where uh, either people I work with or people I ski with regularly are like, hey Sam, just so you know, this is something I'm learning about myself and I'd like you to know too. And that that's that's super meaningful. That makes my existence in these spaces. It, it validates me in a way that um, I don't I don't wish to center it on me because it's their journey. But the fact that they feel an ability to share that is is really is really touching and special to me. In terms of rural organizing, I think my queerness has informed my work because I believe in rural autonomy and uh, that's something I work for. I believe in food sovereignty um, and I believe in representation and sometimes that is purely uh, something that's on a ballot, you know, the, the, uh, in, our, in our work we are working to make sure all, all folks who speak Navajo can get a ballot in Navajo. But it also means that that folks can vote for and fight for issues that will help a broader swath of people rather than just people who look like you, live where you do, um, and think like you do. I think more than anything, my queerness has allowed me to um, work harder for the things that I want and the things that I want all folks to have access to um, and, and it's allowed me to use my privilege in a way that um, expands far beyond myself. I think uh, radical acts of visibility are only possible in places where, where we are not the norm and we have to lean into that and, and make that a part of our daily lives, not just something that's celebrated a month of the year. Um, yeah, so dance harder, hug your friends harder, um, yeah, be less apologetic, and, and goodness will follow. Thank you to Storyteller Sam. This is the third interview in a new KZMU project airing stories and experiences from local LGBTQ community members. Ginger Allen conducted this interview and Sarah Mead edited this piece. For more on the project, head to our website at kzmu.org. You can find this story and others under the Programs tab by clicking on Lift Up LGBTQ Visibility. And now the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories about the Moab area. 
Sustainability Director Mila Dunbar-Irwin recently updated the city council on her department. Among the issues she's working on? Getting streetlights dark sky compliant. Doug McMurdo of the Times Independent has more. She actually um, offered a presentation to the city council at the September 14th meeting. At, at that meeting, she uh, made basically an update on what her progress is. She's, she's tasked really with um, preparing Moab for how to address climate change, um, renewable energy. Mm-hmm. She's really involved with the, um, the electric car chargers right. in town. Um, she's really involved with Dark Skies, Dark Skies Initiative. And the city is going to take a pretty big uh, step forward in that regard, um, hopefully by the end of the year when uh, Rocky Mountain Power comes in and replaces uh, 419 lights, street lights that they, that they operate here uh, within the city city boundaries. That's a lot of lights. That's a, at a cost of $90,000. But Rocky Mountain Power has been wanting to change out these lights anyway because they have these new, more efficient LED lights. So the uh, the plan is the city's $90,000 investment will be recouped within uh, three years, two years and eight months, to be more precise. And what's cool about it is It'll illuminate what's on the ground, but they won't shine up into the skies, right. preserving the dark skies. It's a, it's an important step to take regarding um, becoming eligible for dark sky uh, certification. Um, it's a lot easier for a national park to get certified dark skies than it sure. is for a municipality with all the ambient light. But it's a big step forward, and private property owners can also take advantage of changing out their lights. Right. Um, with this deal, if enough of them sign on, if they do, they won't have to pay what they call mobilization charges, which the city will pay. That's putting crews up in a hotel. They're paying their per diem while they're in town and doing the work, which will will take about a week. And she's hoping that that gets done by the end of the year. And we'll find out uh, at Tuesday's meeting. Okay, so interesting stuff. It sounds like the city's making big moves on dark skies. The city probably needs to be doing this and changing their own outside lights, like you said, the traffic lights and, and other things on their buildings, if they expect um, residents to also comply with their right. ordinance. And, and, and they're going to. Um, you know, she's she's a, a bright lady, Mila Dunbar-Irwin is. She's got kind of a holistic approach to the job. It was really interesting uh, sitting down to talk to her. Mm-hmm. Her goal is to help make Moab resilient against you know outside forces, whether they're social, political, weather, you know, all of these Uh things that are coming at us. All right, we'll take us somewhere else. Doug, what else would you like to highlight in this week's edition of the Times Independent? Um, We have an update on the June 2020 traffic fatality Mm. of um, Stephanie Zimmerman. She she died at the scene of that crash. Jared Ellers, um, he was the driver. He pleaded guilty to automobile homicide. Okay. Uh, uh, last week in front of uh, 7th Judicial District Court Judge Don Torgerson. He will go to sentencing on November 1st, and this will be in Monticello because the uh, the crash occurred in San Juan County. So the judge told him to be present. The hearing itself will be virtual, but he told uh, Mr. Ellers to be present at the Monticello courthouse and to plan on going to jail. And, and um, it's important that, you know, I'm using the term jail and not prison. 
because it's expected that uh, defense attorney and Andrew Fitzgerald will argue um, for a term in the county jail and probation. And obviously, uh, San Juan County prosecutor Kendall Luz is going to uh, ask for a prison sentence. And the judge doesn't have to uh, go with anybody's plan. He can, uh, he's got the freedom to do what he wants, what he feels uh, is appropriate, okay. sentencing-wise. Okay, so the driver, like you said, entered a guilty plea. It's just now, it's a matter of what his sentence is. Right. In the meantime, adult parole and probation will do a background investigation. All of that will help the judge make up his mind. Yeah, you report in this piece in the Times Independent that there was open and unopened containers of alcohol found in the crash debris. Um, So like you said, the adult probation and parole sounds like they're going to be looking into their recommendation. Yeah. And I think that um, he made the right decision entering the guilty plea because the evidence was was overwhelming. There was Mm -hmm. a young man who survived. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had on his seatbelt and just sustained minor injuries. And he said that him and Stephanie were, uh, were scared witless and that he was traveling at over 100 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, just a tragedy. Thank you for that important update on this um, tragic case, Doug. Now let's go to one more story in the Times Independent, this one about redistricting. Redistricting. Uh, we have our results of the 2020 census. It was long delayed by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, but in the next few months, Grand County, they really hope that the public gets involved in helping um, draw new districts. As you know, mm. the county districts and the school district districts, none of them are, are legal in terms of meeting the Voting Rights Act. All five districts should be as equal in number of people as possible. I think the law will allow like a 5% differential between between two districts sure. b- before you yeah. get in trouble. And that's that's kind of significant, 5%. Yeah, 5%. 5%. But yeah. currently, I think we've got, um, and I'm only exaggerating a little bit, I think we have one district with 1,000 people and another with a couple of hundred. So that's not equal representation <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. That's really important. And I think it's even more important that the county uh, do whatever it can to give us one representative. Right now, we're split down the middle yeah. with uh, Christina Watkins and uh, Mr. Albrecht right. representing, you know, mm-hmm. various on uh, the state level. On the state level, and I, I don't think this should be partisan in any mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form because the odds are pretty strong that with with one representative, mm-hmm. we can get more stuff done. So, and you know, there's also the argument of like it's virtually impossible for anyone from Grand County to win a state house seat right. because we're so we're split in two. You know, so right. our voting power is really cut. Right. Um, and you mentioned so we have you know a couple of things going on with redistricting. We have our state house redistricting process, which is. Um, like you mentioned, Representative Albrecht and Watkins are two representatives, which, you know, is is very questionable. And then we have the county, the local county commission seats that are going through a redistricting process, too. Right. You know, what's funny is we partnered with the League of Women Voters to do a redistricting information event. And uh, going through that process with them was really interesting because nobody really could tell me when the last time our county districts 
uh, were redrawn. It's it's been at least thirty years. Exactly. It's it's a, it was a conversation that came up repeatedly during the uh, change in form of government committee meetings that that right. we, that were held for a year. Uh-huh. The entire history of it, and that's when it became not just clear that we were a little bit out of balance, uh-huh. but we were way way out of balance, like almost criminally. And the reason why is because we went to a nonpartisan council. So there was no need to really address that issue. I see. That makes sense to me. Because if there was partisan elections, maybe there would be a little bit more back and forth and attention on what the actual districts are. Right. There there would be a lot more attention Mm -hmm. on who was running Mm -hmm. and where they lived. And there hasn't, that, that concern has not existed for 30 years until the legislature made us change our form of government and make it partisan. Doug McMurdo, editor of the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. A sustainability action plan for Moab City was last drafted back in 2019, but the previous sustainability director left the position before the plan could receive final approvals. Now, new director Mila Dunbar-Irwin is updating it and moving the plan forward. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more details from this plan and how it ties in to Utah Climate Week. So the new plan is literally being drafted like right now. Mm -hmm. Um, The timeline is right now. September and October, these groups will convene to talk about the old goals um, and kind of decide what they want to do moving forward. And then um, October to November, the plan will open up to public comment. Mm -hmm. And in December to January, um, it'll be workshop by city council meetings. Okay. So hopefully this plan will kind of come into action sometime early next year. A lot of what's going to be actually in it will come from the 2019 plan Mm -hmm. that never got out of its draft stage. There will be like 11 general sections talking about like energy and transportation and water and air quality. And the plan, this is going to be like a guiding document for policies, yeah. right? How is this How is this plan going to be put into action? I asked Mila about that and she said it'll kind of depend on each goal. Okay. Um, so they're not doing, like in 2009, they made a 2020 vision plan saying that, you know, each of these goals will try to complete by 2020. But mm. this action plan won't be like that because it'll kind of be like each goal will have a different timeline. I know they have specific goals when it comes to reducing water use, specific goals when it comes to um, energy reduction, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing, and they might not be exactly lined up. Right. And the water goals and the energy conservation are both from outside agencies. Like with the water conservation plan, that's actually a Utah law, Mm -hmm. is that cities... And towns within Utah have to have a water conservation plan, and it has Mm -hmm. to be updated every five years. So that's why we've done super well with that. So as far as the new sustainability action plan, it's kind of starting from almost like a blank slate. I mean, the sustainability department is partnering with like USU and like our local waste and recycling centers. But as far as goals beyond energy and water, we're kind of starting new. Yeah. What lies beyond energy and water in the sustainability plan? Yeah. So there's going to be a section dedicated to transportation, which was a huge thing in 2019. And 
transportation is a reason why the 2019 plan never really got off the ground just mm-hmm. because the city council and the mayor um, mm-hmm. who are all of the same people who we have now they were like really pushing for a public transportation plan but the old plan didn't really include that so transportation is going to be a huge one mm-hmm. that we can kind of look out for there's also going to be a section on community and engagement which mm-hmm. I think is pretty cool because I mean talking to anyone in Moab mm-hmm. like It feels like the entire community like really cares about being sustainable. So it's great that we're literally going to be included in the Mm -hmm. master plan. There will also be a section on land use and planning, um, which will hopefully help kind of drive future affordable housing projects, especially because a lot of the people who are running for city council and running for mayor Uh have talked about affordable housing um, kind of in their platforms. So hopefully if this sustainability action plan is implemented by January, then the land use section and planning section at least will kind of provide a base to work off of as we build like affordable housing projects. Okay, so there's a lot in there. Definitely. And it's actively being drafted. Does Mm -hmm. it need to have approval or is it just this document that exists? Yes, it will have to get approved. Hopefully it will be approved and kind of workshopped in city council in December and January. So the next seated city council will have a new mayor, we'll have two new council members Mm -hmm. who will be tasked with helping to implement the plan and actually make um, policies related to it. And Mila also mentioned that she wants it to be December and January in city council meetings so that the old city council and the old mayor will kind of get a say as well as the new people. One of the biggest things with this sustainability action plan is also thinking about funding Mm -hmm. because the city is, you know, like $60 million behind in their capital improvement projects. And so I was asking Mila, like, where is the sustainability department going to get funding? Um, And she said that the department is largely funded through um, grants, but some of sometimes it gets a little tricky because a lot of grants are reliant on like they basically say, like, we will give you this amount of money if your city agrees to match it. Yeah. Um, right. And so I think that kind of the budget aspect is going to be an interesting one to see um, in the city council meetings. And also because I think, like, it's going to be pretty important to city council members that they get this plan approved and get it ready for the next budget. Yeah. Um, and that they don't, like, miss their window for that. Right. Oh, man, that's so tough. Having a sustainability department, I think it sometimes gets some criticism if you have, like, feel-good policies. Mm -hmm. But a lot of these policies are, like, directly addressing the realities of climate change and living in um, a desert environment. Yeah, definitely. Which, of course, like, if they go unaddressed, have their own long-term costs. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those things where you, I think, maybe with community engagement, I'm sure... That's yeah. part of it is saying, mm-hmm. hey, like we have to do some of this stuff now. Yeah, definitely. Um, or else we're going to have a lot of expense in the future. Yeah. And also, um, so Utah Climate Week is coming up and okay. Mila kind of tried to like time this announcement basically of like redoing the action plan with mm-hmm. Utah Climate Week. But there will be a community future vision session mm-hmm. on Thursday, September 30th, um, kind of as like the city's celebration of Utah Climate Week. Mm-hmm. And that's a time when community members can like voice what they think Moab's priority should be in creating sustainability mm-hmm. goals. But if people miss that one meeting, there's going to be 
a couple months later this fall when the plan will be open to public comment. Okay, great. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Now to some other things to look out for. Tell us what's going on this weekend. Yeah, so this weekend is the Youth Garden Project's Harvest Festival. There'll be a jam and pie contest. There'll be pizza and music um, and games. Gardeners can enter their produce in the Blue Ribbon Contest and exhibition. And those categories would be like silliest fruit. You know, if you like have a carrot that looks like a person or something. (laughs) Um, Like largest fruit or vegetable and rarest fruit or vegetable Uh for those of us who maybe have like a really cool greenhouse or something. Uh Yeah, I'm glad that YGP is doing this again Mm -hmm. this year. It's kind of neat to see like how many people do garden in this town. Oh, Um, definitely. And... All the different varieties. I remember last year, um, one of the contestants entered rice. Some rice that they were able to grow on their property, which is really neat for a home gardener. Really cool. I love the garden scene out here. I will be volunteering. I'm making pizza from 5 to 7. Oh, nice! (laughs) Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories about the Moab area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes of our news at kzmu.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.